G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Realfaith.org.au So I was at over 30 hospitals, padded cells, I was on drugs to get out of bed, drugs to go to bed, smashing up places, attacking nurses, you know, real bag of marbles I was, you know, and uh, it was the alcohol was the number one issue in my life. Welcome to Real Faith, conversations about the impact faith has on our lives and the challenges we go through, helping us today and giving us hope for tomorrow. That's real people, real life and real faith with Eric Scadabo. Well, recently I was asked if I'd like to interview Kevin Mad Dog Mudford. And I said, anyone with a name like Mad Dog is someone I want to talk to and find out their story. I have since come to learn that he was one of New Zealand's most notorious jailbirds in the 1970s. And that he is a colorful character, both figuratively and literally, with tattoos up and down his arms. Today, we're going to find out his story and how he got the name Mad Dog and why he's been living on the road for over 35 years. Kevin Mad Dog Mudford, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Eric. Glad to have you with us. And for the benefit of our listeners, I think we should describe your appearance. I saw some photos of you on Facebook, kind of a bikey kind of look with the, the tattoos, even one tattoo on your forehead. Is that a safe way to describe you? Yeah, I've got a few tattoos, which is quite popular today. I've got one on my head up there, and uh, it says, Jesus is Lord. I've got them up the arms too, but some are prison ones and some I've added to fix up the prison ones. Oh, okay. And uh, you also kind of dress in bikey clothes with the leather jacket and all that? Oh, I used to. I was on bikes for years. Uh, not these days, and uh, I haven't been on a Harley now for over two years, but uh, I dressed in a lot of leather and stuff over the years, but uh, that season's finished. Yeah, well, you used to have a big, long beard, like a bikey kind of tough guy, but uh, I guess you've shaved that off recently. I have, yeah. When you get on Harleys, it's like you get around other bikers. They've all got beards, and so you grow it. But, of course, I've gotten older, a bit grayer, so I shave my head and no no whiskers, so I still look reasonably young. <laughs> what, what I got. We're going to find out your story today, but unfortunately, it didn't start off too well. It was pretty rough growing up in New Zealand. Is that right? Oh, absolutely, Eric. And uh, broken home, absent father. My father was a World War II POW. He came back, had eight children, and uh, was unable to uh, communicate. And uh, and so, uh, so he was a prisoner he was never of there war. For me. He was German prisoner war camps three three and a half years. Yeah. So did that kind of so, leave him traumatized? Is that why he couldn't oh, relate no to you guys? Oh, no doubt about it. Absolutely. He came back and uh, had huge problems. And uh, and so, you know, there's no hugs, there's no encouragement, no nothing. And uh, he just wasn't there when we needed him. Hmm. Absent. Yeah. But I thought that was normal until oh, okay. you get into trouble. And years later, you, you, you work out where things went wrong and uh, alcohol and... Uh, Dust on the Bible, bashings and stuff, you know, all that stuff was going on. And, uh, yeah, dysfunction, big time. And how did you react to this troubled home life? Oh, I hated home, and uh, I wanted to hit the streets, and uh, which I did. Escaped out the window at night time, and uh, 
went on burglary sprees and um, hung out with all my mates down there, um, smoking, drinking and uh, listening to rock music of my day and uh, hated home. I, I just wanted to sleep and live with all my street kid mates of the day, sniffing glue, the whole lot. Hated home. Couldn't stand it. It actually wasn't home. It was just a place to live. Well, what about your mother? What was your relationship with your mother like? None, really. She she had to raise uh, eight children, Eric, and uh, so she was struggling too. And she mm. smoked and drank and swore, and uh, she was a tough lady, and uh, she tried to get my father to uh, be more of an assistance. But, of course, back in those days, um, they, they weren't. there wasn't those uh, facilities around to educate parents on how to get a better deal. And uh, so, uh, but again, I put the blame back squarely on my father. He was unable to uh, to cope. Hmm. He did his best with what he had, but uh, fell short. Yeah. Yeah. So emotionally absent, it sounds like. And tell us about the time when you were 14 years old and you were at the courthouse. Okay. I was in the courthouse here one day getting ready to be locked up and uh, a real scary place with a lot of adults around me. And uh, my father was there. And I remember the magistrate saying to my father, can't you control him? And my father says, I've done my best. And I thought, that's not true. Hmm. And anyway, the judge uh, sentenced me to a real scary social welfare home. And my father um, just walked straight out the door, no hugs, no I love you, no nothing, and just left. He must have been pretty shattered too. And uh, yeah, so I thought, oh, good, he's out of my life now. And uh, so it was a pretty lonely, shattering existence standing alone before that magistrate in the children's court. Absolutely. Wow, so that just really made a strong impression on your heart that you're just not loved. Is that how you felt? Yeah, well, I was pretty wild back in those days, Eric, and mm-hmm. you know, all I wanted to be was get out there with my mates and uh, get wasted, do bergs, and uh, I hated my parents, I hated home, I hated authority, I hated the whole thing out there. And uh, So back in those days, I was being uh, shuffled around uh, uh, boys' homes and kids' homes. So in some way, it was exciting because of my age and where I was at, but in other ways, there um, I was really uh, a pretty messed up, screwed up, broken kid. Absolutely. No help back in those days, mm. you see, like they have today. Yeah. And then drugs and alcohol entered into your life as well? Oh, alcohol, yeah. Drank to get drunk, uh, Eric. I became a teenage alcoholic and uh, I woke up in gutters. I woke up in parks, blackouts, and uh, I couldn't remember where I was and... Uh, uh, the only way I knew you had a drink was drink to get drunk. That was me. Loved alcohol, loved getting wasted, the whole lot out there. And uh, I would have become a an alcoholic from the, the first drink, no doubt about it whatsoever. Hmm. And again, I ran with other young kids like me who got wasted, who'd come from the same broken homes also. And so you ended up in uh, several social welfare homes? I was in uh, four social welfare homes where I was beaten, bashed, and uh in one place, I was made to scrub my arms with uh, pumice stone to get the ink out of my arms when I tattooed myself. Uh, I was uh, bashed in what they would use as sleep deprivation. If you oh, went wow. to sleep, they bashed you in the head, made you to stay awake. Now I'm 13, 14 years of age, and uh, wealthy homes back in those days were um, unlicensed places, uh, uh, authoritarian, and they got away with stuff that they could never get away with today. Yeah, so absolutely brutal, shocking treatment. But you were allowed to go out for your birthday, is that right? Yeah, Eric, one day I had the opportunity to get out of that 
terrible place that I was in. And uh, my mother and father came around in, in an old car, and uh, and I thought, oh, it's my birthday. It was my 14th birthday, and I thought, I wonder what I'm going to get for my birthday. And so I got in the back of the old car. My mother turned around with an open bag of minties, and, uh, and I wasn't one to shiny emotions, and I thought, is this all I'm worth? You know, I'm in this rotten social welfare home. It's my one day out. And all I'm getting is a bag of minties. I don't even think my father wished me a happy birthday. No hugs, no nothing at all. And uh, and I got out for the day from that terrible place. And that was my birthday present. One opened bag of minties. Yeah. Oh, wow. So obviously your heart's at this point feeling pretty empty and uh, abandoned, would you say? Oh, absolutely. Because I uh, just kept on going the way I was going and... Uh, you know, breaking into shops and stuff like that, stealing where I could. Again, I was on a, on a pathway to prison, and, and at 15 years of age, I I broke out of a boys' detention centre, nearly killed a man, and uh, found myself before the magistrate courts again. And uh, then I spent uh, sent down to a uh, a big youth prison in Invercargill, and I was locked up down there uh, a lot of the time in punishment cells for nearly 19 months. And then eventually you ended up in psychiatric hospitals. How did that happen? Well, I was in, uh, I was in seven New Zealand prisons. I terrorised jails. I was uh, lighting fires and attacking prison wardens and just really off my head, basically, and uh, hated authority. Was that because of the anger in your heart? I hated authority. I, I detested people in uniforms. Mm-hmm. I really did because I'd seen what they can do to you. And so uh, up and down the land of NZ, then uh, OD'd in Wellington, New Zealand, ate a poison toadstool, washed it down the bottle of gin, woke up in the pound, and then from that day onwards, I entered the mental psychiatric hospital system looking for uh, recovery. I was a, an alcoholic and on drugs. So did you actually have a mental illness, or was it more the alcohol and the drugs that were making you act in crazy ways? Oh, yeah. Look, I wasn't mental at all. I was what they call a, uh, a professional mental health patient. In other words, I went looking for a mental illness I never had huh. and uh, because I wouldn't accept the fact that the drink and the drugs was the issue. And oh. so, I'd pl- yeah. so I'd play up to convince the uh, the doctors that I really had mental problems so they'd keep me a bit longer, you know. But the fact of the matter was that um, I had a loneliness problem, hmm. which only Jesus could fill, of course. Yeah. And uh, So I was in over 30 hospitals, padded cells. I was on drugs to get out of bed, drugs to go to bed. Uh, again, smashing up places, attacking nurses, you know, real bag of marbles I was, you hmm. know. And uh, again, it was the alcohol was the number one issue in my life. Our guest today is Kevin Mad Dog Mudford, who's sharing his colorful life journey. Next, Kevin will share what happened once he decided to follow Jesus. All that and more is coming up when we return, right here on Real Faith. Looking for resources to grow your faith? Check out Vision Christian Store with books, movies, audio CDs, DVD resources and more. Plus, free delivery on orders over $50. See visionstore.org.au You're listening to Real Faith. Conversations with real people about how God works in their lives. If you want to know more about integrating faith into your life, our website is realfaith.org.au 
That's realfaith.org.au. Just go to the website and you'll find helpful articles about the impact faith can have on your life. And you can listen to past programs about the impact faith has had on others. Once again, that's realfaith.org.au. Welcome back. I'm Eric Scadabo, and our guest today is Kevin Mad Dog Mudford, who is sharing his life journey. Before the break, we heard about his troubled childhood growing up in New Zealand and spending time in jails and psychiatric hospitals. Now we're going to hear about the next chapter in his life when he finally decided to follow Jesus. 15 years of age, I got invited to a uh, prison Bible study in Invercargill Jail. Uh, put on by a born-again Catholic priest, and he was the first person who shared Jesus with me. Mm. But the years I spent in jails, I'd go to prison chapel services, and I'd get to hear the the message of salvation. But, of course, uh, until I was ready to change, there was just nowhere to go. Um, again, the mental hospitals, I ran into Christians who came in to try and help us. But, again, I wasn't prepared to uh, swap my grog for a Bible. Didn't want to change at that point. No, well, I was only my 20, 23, 24 years of age over those years when I was in the mental hospitals. And uh, again, I love me alcohol, I love me marijuana, I love me pill taking. When I say I love it, I just love to get wasted. I love me music, you see. And, mm. uh, and being a Christian really didn't seem like a fun place to be, hanging out in church. Just wasn't me. If you were inside these institutions, how were you able to have the drugs or was that when you were out? Oh, when I got out there, but uh, of course you can smuggle them in, and uh, there were times I got wasted in, in, in jail. And uh, but most of my issues were when I got out, because when I got out, a little bit of money, bang, you, you hit the the booze, and there's always someone out there with pills and weed, you know, hmm. how it all rolls out there. And of course, when I'd get loaded with the with the booze and the drugs, you don't care, you know, you forget yeah. about the pain, and you get you get and do some dumb things. Yeah. So it sounds like as a young adult, you were mad at the world and kind of self-medicating with the, the drugs and the booze? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, you see, when I was a kid, the only thing I did well was play up, mm. you know. And my report card said, when things aren't going Kevin's way, Kevin plays up. So I'd play up. That that gave me the center of attention that I never got when I was a kid, you see. Mm. So everything's all back to front, you see, you know. Oh, okay. So when i doing the booze, you know, and all my mates out there, uh, that same behaviour flowed again, you see, and a uh, centre of attention, you know. How many wacky things can uh, Kevin Mad Dog do this weekend, you know, and uh, it's like a competition. Oh, at this point, I guess we should ask you, how did you get the nickname Mad Dog, although I think it's becoming quite apparent. Yeah, well, it was just mad, actually, you know, mm. and uh, my behaviour, well, yeah, when I when I found the Lord, I, I did a lot of uh, work in high school, so... I became Mad Dog because when I go speak in schools, I wanted kids to remember my name, you see, you know. And uh, and so uh, the Mad Dog bit kind of stuck, and that's kind of how I was known because that's how I identified myself and uh, because I really was mad but not mad. Quite, I'm quite intelligent, actually, <laughs> and uh, but it's just how I was. I was super rebellious. Okay, so you're in your young adult years. Things aren't looking too well at this point for all the reasons that you've mentioned. How does God finally come into your life? Oh, nothing short of miraculous, Eric. I could have spent the last 37 years of my life behind bars. I have friends still in jail today hmm. that were in jail when I was 15 years of age. Well, America really, end of the road, 25 and a half years of age, locked up in a psychiatric hospital. A lady wrote to me one day and told me that my own brother 
had gotten sober through AA, had then found Jesus. And so I thought, isn't this amazing? Hmm. My own brother, same story, same background, has become a reborn Christian, found the Lord. Really captivated me. So I managed to uh, wheel and deal and get out of that mental hospital that I was in, travelled down to Napier, New Zealand. I wanted to check out whether my brother's life had really changed. And he was on fire for the Lord. And I thought, wow, this stuff really must be real. But what forced me into the church, Eric, was I had the drinking problem, you see, and I realized that uh, unless I got rid of the grog out of my life, mm-hmm. um, I would be locked up for the rest of my life, die an early death, or be confined to a mental hospital for years to come. So the motivating factor for me to give my life to Jesus, one was my brother, two was this drinking issue. And, uh, and so I surrendered my life to the Lord, and I tell you what, God got a hold of me and started doing miracles from day one. Wow. Did you go to AA? Yeah, I, I've, I've uh, been to AA. I, I preached and shared in AA for 37 and a half years. I've just recently retired from attending AA. And, uh, yeah, so, um, yep, 37 and a half years attending AA meetings, sometimes five nights a week. Wow. So you give your life to the Lord. Then what happens next in your life? I gave my life to the Lord there and adjusted myself to this little uh, Pentecostal church I was in. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I realized that uh, the people in there were fair dinkum people who had real stories. So I went around talking to them all. I wanted to know what they were doing there and what their story was. And I heard some amazing stories in there, not so much like mine, but they had their own stories. Mm -hmm. But I could see that these people really cared, and they became my extended family. And then one Sunday night, I went forward there to get prayed for, and I tell you what, uh, the Lord spoke to me, and he said to me that I'd come home, and he got me. And it's going to turn me into a, 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 an evangelist, and uh, and it's going to send me back to all the places that I was once in. So I thought, wow, how is he going to do that? Hmm. Well, there's a little old lady in the church who came up to me and gave me a lend of her car. And so my prison ministry began in 1981. I saw miracles before my eyes. I saw God take me back into every boy's home, every mental hospital, every prison um, for years and years, it just blew me out what he could do. And that's what encouraged me to keep on going when the going got tough. Wow. And so did you go to Bible school? Did you get some training? Well, I did, actually. It was quite funny, really, because, you know, uh, when I went to Bible college, uh, I was there for the right reasons, but I found myself reflecting on my uh, playing up in high school days, you know. Mm. And, uh, yeah, but I, I did a year at Bible college, uh, Raymer, I did, on, mm. the, on the Gold Coast, actually, and uh, – but I, I went to church every night of the week, AA meetings every night of the week. I went to Bible studies, prayer meetings, church services. I immersed myself in the things of God there, and I realized that uh, God's Bible, the Word, was so real. Because I got bored again, you see, yeah. and it just made sense to me, and um, just the Scriptures came alive to me, and, uh, and off I went, preaching, evangelizing, street preaching, uh just miraculous. Even right up till today, I, I was at Macca's this morning, Eric, and uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, ministering to a uh, a young street lady. Uh, gave her fifty bucks for some uh, 
uh, to help her out just this morning. Uh, mm. You know, it, it just never stops. Yeah. And uh, uh, the ministry, just yesterday we, 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 we bought breakfast for a lady who was a, a bag lady, nothing, old lady sleeping in the park. And uh, 37 and a half years, God has just taken me to people like me. And it's just kept on going and going and going. It never stops. just amazes me. Now, I forgot to ask you, how did you get from New Zealand to Australia? A miracle, actually, via America. I had a dream to go to America, right? and uh, and uh, well, God opened up a door with uh, Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth mm-hmm. Copeland bought me a motorhome and sent me to America, and out of that, 21 years ago, came the tribe of Judah. Well, on my way back, I got kicked out of Australia, back to New Zealand to get my passport sorted out, and, uh, and, and in New, New Zealand, they gave me a... Um, a re-entry visa, and I was able to get back into Australia. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened <laughs> via America. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. And so you've been on the road just living in a caravan. Is that right? My wife and I, yep, yeah, 37 years on the road, uh, full-time, raise our own support. Uh, we received no welfare, no sentiment payments, no wages, no nothing. Uh, God looks after us via the church. Uh, he said to me, don't go looking for the money. The money will follow you. And after two years of being saved, um, I hit the road as an evangelist and, uh, and off I've been. And 28 years around Australia, uh, working in every conceivable place you could imagine and uh, carrying crosses, thousands of meetings. I've been amongst the Aboriginals, a whole lot, Northern Territory, Thursday Islands, Vanuatu, Fiji, Solomon Islands, but most of the work here in Australia, doing the hard yards, absolutely. Living anywhere, sleeping anywhere, paying the bills on time, uh, living within our own means, you know, as as the Lord has supplied and... uh, Paying the price, absolutely. So you are now a traveling evangelist, and some of your ministry is conventional. In other words, you preach in churches, but some of it is unconventional that you carry around a large life-size cross on the street. Yeah, well, that's right. i um done that for many years. Again, I met an American evangelist, Arthur Blessett, in 1986, and uh, he's the one that inspired me to do it. And I did that for many years, and after the bashing 10 years ago, I stopped for eight oh, years. Tell us about then, what happened 10 years ago. Uh, 10 years ago, I was speaking down in Morissette there in a, in a Christian uh, meeting for addicts, mm-hmm. and uh, AA meeting it was actually, half guest speaker. And um, as I walked out there, a man came up behind me and uh, bashed me five times over the head with a brick. And uh, so I was nearly killed. I spent uh, 10 days in hospital, brain injury, the whole lot. Uh, Sad time, really. But I came through it all, got back up on the horse and uh, rode again for Jesus. Yeah. And then I picked up the cross two and a half years ago in Bowen, walked into speak at a Baptist church, saw a cross in the corner there, and Jesus spoke to me, and he said to me, I want you to carry a cross again. And so I spent the last two and a half years dragging my cross right across Australia. We take it out in the highways, and I've walked thousands of kilometres from town to town, and that's what we do. And I just got a brand new cross, big heavy thing it is, and uh, I've been dragging it up and down uh, the Gold Coast, talking to people about Jesus. Mm. Just telling people about Jesus. Oh, yeah, well, because uh, they see the cross coming and uh, and it draws out people that want to have a talk. So uh, I'm not banging people up on street corners with the Bible. Mm. Uh, people who want to talk to me, up they come. And I meet them all out there. I meet cancer patients, drug addicts, uh, religious people. I meet all sorts of people from all around the world, people who want to talk. It's my fishing line. 
Yeah. yeah. Works real well. It's hard work. I'm 63, but God made me strong. Amen. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but any final comments about people's lives you've touched over the years? Oh, well, I reckon that, uh, well, I've been married for 32 years, and the greatest relationship and test of all time is living with another human being. And uh, so the greatest miracle, really, apart from finding Jesus, Eric, is been living with my wonderful wife for 32 years. You know, we blew for the first 15 years. We fought like cats and dogs, Mm -hmm. Eric, and uh, for control. (laughs) And I just want to say that um, without Jesus, look, I wouldn't have married me. (laughs) And so, but 32 years we've been married on the road and uh, love one another, helping one another. And uh, it's just amazing. And uh, and again, uh, the opportunity to minister and help people right across this world, not as an egotistical thing, but just sharing my story, you know. Mm-hmm. Prevention's better than cure. Telling the truth. I love telling this story I, mm-hmm. because there's so much rubbish in the world, so much so much false. I mean, every time you pick up the, um, the paper, you know, you got Prince Harry in there. <laughs> not knocking Prince Harry, but I thought, you know, there's more to life than Prince Harry, you know. And, uh, and I think the world needs to hear more real-life stories. So I'm always encouraging Christians to pick up your testimony. You have a story to tell and go and find somebody out there who needs to hear it. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate that. Our guest today has been Kevin Mad Dog Mudford, and if you want to contact him or learn more about him, you can find him on Facebook. Just look up Kevin Mad Dog Mudford. You've been listening to Real Faith, and if you have any questions or comments, you can send us a message through our website, realfaith.org.au. That's realfaith.org.au. Thanks for listening, and we invite you to join us again next time for more conversations about God working in the lives of people who put their faith and trust in Him. That's real people, real life, and real faith. This program is a production of Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, see vision.org.au.